Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. And welcome to the Halftime Report, everybody. I am not the judge. I am Brian in for Scott. He gets a well-deserved days off. Well, the everything rally rolling on, mostly, as investors pull a Taylor Swift with inflation and shake it off. The question you have is, will I keep making money into the new year in stocks or should I book some profits now? It is a very good question and we're going to answer it with our all-star group today, which includes Jenny Harrington, Jim Labenthal, Joe Terranova, and Pete Nigerian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Cannot wait. We'll get to them in just a moment. But first, let us check the score. All the major averages now less than 1% again from new record highs. Yeah, there's a little bit of red on the screen, but we are seeing the markets down just a touch. In fact, some of the indexes, they are higher. You heard Carl talk about the move in the 10-year yield as well. But Jim Labenthal, let us kick it off with you because, yeah, okay, we're down a little bit today for certain indexes. The reality is this. We've had one of the best two-month stretches in 20 or 30 years for equities, every day was like, oh, eight-day streak, nine-day streak. Is this fund managers, and I hate to use the word, but semi-panicking that they need to load up on winners so that at the end of the year they don't look like dunces? Yeah, yes, it is. That's that's part of it, uh, Brian. And by the way, good to see you always. Um, so let me start with the punchline. I think this rally continues and crescendos through year end and probably through mid January to late January. For me, it's very reminiscent of 2017. That was a gangbusters year. And then it crescendoed into January. And then you had that VIX, that volatility note uh, uh, hiccup that caused things to come crashing down. It wasn't much of a crash. It was just a pickup in volatility. I don't know what that catalyst will be. And I don't care because the next two months should be pretty clear sailing. It's for the reason that you mentioned of any institutional manager who has held cash is now desperate to catch the index and all they can do is buy. The other aspect is who wants to sell if you're a taxable investor? Who wants to sell right now and take gains? Now, underpinning those two uh, technical uh, uh, forces are the fundamental forces of you've got profits very high and still growing. Uh, you've got infrastructure bills set to come. That spending will be spread out over many years, so it's not immediately inflationary. Uh, the Build Back Better bill with its potentially negative taxes seems to be on hold, at least for now. Uh, the Fed, sure, it's tapering, but it's still accommodative. Delta is waning. Uh, need I go on? There are both fundamental and positive reasons that this rally will stay intact. There you go, Jenny. Oh, let's talk about the BBB, the Build Back Better, because Jim said it looks like it's on hold. Well, in the initial version, there was talk about higher capital gains taxes on certain classes. Now you've got people talking about a tax reduction if they raise the salt cap. I don't want to go into some political conversation about, about you know taxes and whatever. However, if we're not seeing the indication of likely higher capital gains, Jim's right. 
You don't have to sell. Now, if that changes, you might want to sell before the year end and lock in some profits at perhaps lower rates. Well, here's a little bit of a counterintuitive thought. So what we're doing in my office today is we are actually harvesting capital losses. And we don't have many, just a few, but to whatever degree we can for taxable portfolios that have realized a lot of capital gain this year, we're going to, realize, we're going to offset them. Now, two or three weeks ago, I was contemplating not doing it, our traditional capital loss harvesting because I thought, wow, if tax rates are higher next year, then those losses will actually be more valuable to me next year than they would be this year, assuming they plateau. So I think there's a couple different angles on that. You know, maybe it's like the few loser stocks that are out there are actually trading down more because we're seeing that the capital gains rate is likely to stay stable for the vast majority of Americans. That's just a, you know, just a thought. Um, with, I think, by and large, yeah, taxes are staying flat, so you can just make whatever decision that you were planning to make anyway. There you go. All right, Joe Terranova, buy high, sell higher. We talk about selling. Should we talk about buying? Should we be buyers of the macro market here, or is it really a time to be super-duper selective? Good to see you, Brian. Tough loss for your charges yesterday to Pete's Vikings. Um, you never want to sell a quiet market, <laughs> that's for sure. And now you're 20-plus days seeing the S&P not have a 1% or greater move. There's a lot of calm and tranquility right now in the S&P. I think the S&P is properly responding to a very surprising earnings season when profit margins actually expanded versus the contraction that the consensus estimates were calling for. And I think more recently, you have to look upon falling prices for energy, uh, natural gas and crude oil both down for the month. Shipping costs beginning to fall. The Baltic Dry Index beginning to come down as well. Uh, so I think all of this is really uh, favorable for investors as we move towards the end of the year. And I think today the real uh, driving indicator is that, as you mentioned before, Treasury yields are beginning to rise. You have a 20-year bond auction uh, $23 billion worth on Wednesday. We all remember uh, the more recent bond auction, which was certainly uh, less than, uh, we'll just call it disappointing. That's clearly what it was. So I think overall markets in the near term are responding to Treasury yields, but uh, there is a tranquil environment that's warranted based on the fundamentals that suggest a continued move higher into year end, consistent with Mr. All in Jimmy's comments. Good context, Joe, and it's a shame you're going to have unexpected microphone problems for the next 30 minutes or so, but don't worry, they're transitory. <laughs> uh, Pete Nats That's good. That's good. That's good. <laughs> and I had Herbert as my starting fantasy quarterback and lost in my fantasy week and knocked Ooh. out of my survivor pool because of Tom Brady and the stupid Buccaneers. Ten-point favorites losing to Washington. <laughs> Pete Nigerian's also going to be in trouble. I'm kidding. All right, Pete, let's jump back into the yeah. markets here. Are you a buyer of technology? <laughs> Joe made some good points about things a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Jim as well. Are you a buyer heading into year end? Sure I am. Absolutely. I mean, I think what we're seeing, Brian, is what we've seen for the entire year, which has been part of the reason we've gone up and at a fairly you know, consistent base sort of a move to the upside, it seems like, a very methodical move, I think is because of the healthiness of what we've been seeing, which has been that rotation that we talk about all the time. It hasn't been just technology. It's not been just 
uh, the FANG names. It's been a combination of different parts of the market, different segments of the market, different sectors. When There are times where materials seem to be the leader. Industrials have been the leader. Financials have been the leader. We're looking at the 10-year just kind of hanging around somewhere very close to call it 1.5. I know today it's 1.6, but we've been in a very, very tight range there. We've been in a tight range for the VIX as well. We're looking at a volatility index that it's gotten up there towards 20 on a couple of occasions recently. But for the most part, you can almost close your eyes and say, you know what, I think the volatility index is trading somewhere close to 17. You'd probably be right. That's about what it's been. So, you know, I think the consistency of what we have been seeing in this rotation of what we've been seeing in the markets is always very healthy. I think it's something that, uh, you know, we've all been very impressed with. And you just have to continually move around within the marketplace. I think any time that you're finding yourself... Yeah. looking to, to, to maybe make a change, you've got to make that change. And then you rotate into something else. That's why I think the markets are sitting where they are. We're literally 1% off of all-time highs after all of what we have gone through and the shortages and everything else. I think that's why we are still sitting where we are and why the earnings season was so powerful this, year, this particular quarter. Might be the 60 Minutes effect because they had a segment last night about, and I don't know if it was a repeat or not, about supply chain problems. I'm like, well, I appreciate it. Like, now it's eight months late. Uh, Pete, before we let you go, I want to ask you, and we're going to get more individual stocks toward the end of the show. uh, Rivian, R-I-V-N, it's up again, what, like 18% or something, 18 bucks right now? Uh, Are you hanging on here? You going to book some profits? I am. I am. Well, you know what? No, not yet. You are what? I I asked you two things. I'm still holding on to it, yes, and I'm not looking to take a profit. I'm waiting for the options to come out, and then that'll that'll force me probably to make some decisions. Right now, it's just a stock, as you know. So when we start to have options, we start to see a little bit of those volumes start to pick up and all that type of thing and see what the implied volatilities are, then that might make me change my mind a little bit. For right now, I love this company. I mean, the idea that I was able to luckily get a chunk of this as it came out of the IPO, 78 bucks. This is a stock that I've been waiting for. It's one of those names where you've just been sitting there and everybody looked past it. They said, well, you know, it's just another EV company. I don't think that's really the case. And I love the fact that they've got the ties to Amazon as well as what the ties are as far as the investment from Ford. And I know we've gone back and forth a little little bit with Phil LeBeau, but I don't think Ford wants to sell this. I think think Ford is probably going to continue to hold on to this. Well, we'll see, obviously, over time. But So they've got their 10%. Then you look over at Amazon with their 20%. I think Amazon is the perfect feeder for this company going forward. I mean, you could see maybe a a point where the 10% stake in Rivian becomes as valuable as the other 90% of Ford. Not yet, but it's certainly not impossible (laughs) at least at this pace. All right, we're going to get back to a macro combo in a bit. Right now, though, let's get more on the markets and inflation. Because the last time that inflation was running this hot, year over year, Ice Ice Baby was the number one song in America, 1990, true story. And if inflation moves up anymore, we could get into 1982-type territory. But the question is, why hasn't the stock market or the bond market really seemed to care? So let's stop collaborate and listen to Mike Santoli, who is here looking at whether the broader markets are underreacting to a true threat in inflation. Mike, what say you? You know, Brian, um, I would say not yet. I don't think at at this point the fact that the markets are largely shrugging off that very hot inflation number 
last week necessarily means they're kind of whistling past the graveyard. For one thing, this idea that inflation, this inflationary surge was going to be transitory, it took some hits, and rightly so. The Fed clearly has underestimated the degree to which high inflation numbers would stay around. However, we're not beyond that point when the transitory phase was supposed to be over. Just keep in mind, the projection, the consensus forecast for CPI last week was 5.8. It came in 6.2. For core, it was 4.3. It came in 4.6. Obviously, upside surprises, but we already knew that we were not going to be anywhere back near normal, so we have a few months grace period on that. The fact that we have really strong underlying growth is another distinguishing factor. The fact that you have companies being able to navigate this period, preserve their profit margins. I keep saying, you know, all year, Analysts and investment managers right now have never existed in an economy in the U.S. where you had double-digit nominal GDP growth. And therefore, that's flowing through in a lot of uh, ways into uh, companies' bottom lines, top lines. So that's been a, a different factor right now. Finally, um, I do think you have to you know, be, be open to the idea that we're, we're not going to be able to ignore it forever. So the next few months, statistically, we should expect the year-over-year inflation numbers to be pretty high because a year earlier, they were very low. They were depressed. Until we get into March, really, that's the case. So I think it makes sense. You've been talking about the seasonal effects. There's sometimes a little stutter step in the, in the year-end rally right around now into Thanksgiving. So who knows what it means for the very near term. But it does make sense at this point that companies are able to capture uh, yeah. some of this inflation. It's almost all coming from durable goods, as you know, Brian. Yeah, it certainly is. Mike Santoli, a good case there. Let's go back now to, to Jim Labenthal, because, Jim, I understand that we view inflation, some of us of a certain age view inflation as this nasty thing, right? The last time inflation was this hot, the 10-year yield was at 8% and mortgages were 10%. But things are very, very different. Money supply is way higher than that. There are other assets you can invest in as well. And inflation can be good for certain parts of the market. Can it not particularly energy materials, industrials, and you've got the infrastructure bill being passed, you could make a case that there's a very good thing happening with inflation for certain parts of the market, could you not? You, you could, and I'm going to answer your, your question there, but at the end I want you to tell me what 1982 bands we're going to be listening to if inflation goes higher. I'm not sure if it's uh, Donna Summer or Queen or whomever, but I, I think just to keep this really simple, people often hear that stocks are a very good hedge against inflation, and they are. Maybe another way of looking at that is that the forces that have inflated goods are also inflating asset prices. If that's low, uh, low interest rates or the Fed buying bonds, Either way, you have to be in the stock market to participate in that. I happen to believe very fully in what you said, uh, uh, which is that early in an economic expansion, which is where I believe we are, and an expansion that is set to continue as bottlenecks are unclogged uh, and, and as this infrastructure bill uh, takes hold and progresses this expansion through the coming years, you're going to find the values and the cyclical stocks are where you're going to get the best profit growth. So for the next 6 to 12 months, I definitely see energy stocks, industrials, yeah. financials, material stocks. And people know that I'm about 60% invested in my portfolio in that sector. Most of the rest is in growth at a reasonable price, technology stocks, which will do fine. Okay, The FANG stocks will do fine, but those cyclicals and values are going to have higher profit growth. And accordingly, they're going to have higher price increases in their shares. Yeah. And ironically, the world, according to Garp, came out in 1982, Jenny Harrington, and the number one song this week literally was Up Where We Belong by Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warnes. And I do wonder 
if if that sort of is symbolic of the market. I mean, are parts of the market that are inflation sensitive? Inflation can be bad, but can be good. Are all the parts of the market up where they belong? What would you buy if inflation were to last? Okay. So we actually just went through this exercise last week, and I've got a list for you. So what we said was we said, let's say Uh-oh. it does last. Then what do you want to own? You want to own companies with higher fixed costs, higher pricing power, lower labor ex- exposure. And so we came up with, in our portfolios, things like United Rentals, um, like Chevron, Royal Dutch, with Jim, which Jim just mentioned, and the financials, American Express, New York Community Bank, things like that where there's pricing power, where they're not dependent on labor. But when you said there are things that are up there and up there where they belong, I think that's tricky. Because what I think you don't want to own is you don't want to own companies that are priced for perfection. And I think that there are a lot that are Mm. up where they belong as long as there's not a lot of inflation um, coming. So actually, we would back off of the FANG stocks. We'd back off of really high multiple stocks that just happen to have high multiple reasons for for whatever... They were just trading at 20 or 30 or 40 times earnings. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure that things that are up where they belong will be able to sustain that in a high inflationary environment. So we're really looking more in the weeds. Mm. Also, sorry, I meant to mention real estate. I think the real estate investment trusts, they've really lagged over the past couple of years. They could benefit really nicely. They could sail through an inflationary environment. So I, I would not be looking at the top. I would be looking at the bottom in terms of valuations for where you want to be. Okay, Joe Terranova, for you, Jonathan Krinsky, uh, Marco Kalanovic of, of J.P. Morgan saying the inflation trade is, quote, far from crowded. In other words, there is room to make money. Your thoughts? There is, but I think we have to be careful. And, and I happen to agree with the strategy that Jenny is defining in terms of allocating towards inflation-friendly assets. Let's remember, equities offer the best hedge against inflation, um, but but understand, there are policies that are available. There are tools that can be implemented for President Biden's administration to kind of fight the inflation. Now, first of all, ESG is inflationary in its nature. We understand that. So that component of it, and clearly with the electrification of society and the move to decarbonize society, that's not going to change. But, Brian, guess what? We have these tariffs mm. still in place from President Trump's administration, President Biden speaking with President Xi this evening. The quickest fix for President Biden's administration would be to roll back some of these existing tariffs, which without question are inflationary of their nature. So I would kind of keep an eye on that. And I'm not necessarily sure that there aren't various aspects of inflation that clearly are going to be transitory. Yes, some of them related to ESG and wage growth are permanent, but a lot of this is going to be transitory. Uh, So I think I'd be careful here going, concentrating specifically towards inflation protection. Great point. Those tariffs, they're still there, still sitting on all those goods. All right. Well, though the NASDAQ 100 is a skosh slower today, overall it has been a good recent run for most big cap tech names. In fact, 78 NASDAQ 100 stocks are up this quarter, with nine of them up more than 20%. And so our next guest is removing his cautionary call on the NASDAQ. Let's bring in now Jonathan Krinsky, his chief market technician at Baycrest. Jonathan, welcome back. What are you seeing with the NASDAQ or the NASDAQ 100 from a macro level in particular right now? Hey, Brian. So we're on with you guys uh, November 4th, put on a tactical cautionary call on the NASDAQ. At that point, it just seemed things were a little bit overextended. 
we looked at some short-term metrics. The NASDAQ was about 7% above its 20-day moving average, which is about as extreme as we saw all year. Um, and we just thought the risk was was that, uh, you know, there'd be a little bit of a pullback or um, a pause that refreshes. And, you know, we got about a 3% drawdown on the NASDAQ, which in this tape, you know, it's, it's not a big move for the NASDAQ, but given how strong it's been this year, um, it's tough to get much more than that. And and I think what, what changed for us is last week, and you guys have been discussing this, in the face of that uh, much uh, higher than expected CPI, some higher rates, you know, the NASDAQ showed some pretty good resiliency. And you know, we're getting another test today. Yields are back up again. NASDAQ is a bit lower. But I think uh, at this point in the year, at this point in the calendar, you're kind of running out of runway to, you know, to see that big, bigger uh, drawdown. So we're just basically saying that, you know, things have reset, things have kind of come in a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that NASDAQ outperforms if yields keep going higher. We actually like some other areas of the market better, but I think the, uh, you know, the big risk that, of kind of that blow off move has been alleviated a little bit. Joe, Joe, you jumping in here or not? Okay, never. Joe, Joe's got a question. We'll get to him in just a second. Uh, Jonathan, okay, that is the macro tactical call. Semiconductors, uh, maybe not. You're off a little bit on some of those, but there are names you still like. Let's talk about applied materials. Let's talk about LAM research. A lot of our viewers would just buy the SMH or the SOX index and let it ride. I think your tactical point is saying you need to be more specific, even when even inside of groups. Or am I am I reading that wrong? No, I think that's accurate. I mean, some of the ETFs tend to be very market cap dominated. So SMH is very heavy, heavily weighted towards names like NVIDIA, which has been an absolute massive performer. But I think it's up. It was up 50 percent from in the last month or so. So that, you know, that's the type of of action in the NASDAQ that does kind of concern us a little bit. But there's names, as you mentioned, AMAT, uh, LRCX that have basically just started to creep out of these six-month bases, and we think those offer much more timely and much more attractive entry points um, as opposed to the broad-based ETF here. All right, good stuff. Joe, I know you now have a question. Jump right in. I, I do, Brian. I don't think you were kidding there about cutting my microphone off earlier. Uh, Jonathan, <laughs> let me ask you, the last experience with, the, with rising yields for the NASDAQ uh, in, in 2021 was that as yields rose, there was this bifurcation in terms of performance for the NASDAQ overall. A lot of the hyper growth names really struggled, saw significant double digit declines. Is that the kind of environment you think that we could be challenged by as we look forward here, where you would see a crowd strike, which is down 10% today, or that type of hyper growth name really begin to struggle, but yet you would see resiliency in a lot of the mega cap technology names and less uh, PE oriented ones. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly fair. Um, and, you know, the reality, though, is we we talk a lot about yields, but really they, they aren't really doing much. I mean, um, you know, 10-year yields kind of been on either side of 150, 160. So, um, you know, I think it would really take kind of that move up north of 180 in a short, in a short amount of time, you know, to really kind of scare um, some of those high multiple names. But I, I think to your point, um, there is going to be some some underperformance in some of those again because they don't uh, you know they probably don't have that valuation support and uh, you know they're, they're they some of them got a bit over their skis I, I would say. Jonathan Kritsky, we appreciate your views. Baycrest, Jonathan, welcome back anytime. Thank you very much. 
Thanks, Brian. All right, so let's go around the horn and maybe stay on the idea you're welcome of semiconductors here. Pete Najir and I'll go to you. You sold some AMD calls. There can be many reasons for selling calls. Mm -hmm. Why did you sell out of AMD options? Uh, that has been an absolute monster where we have seen this continuous rotation from options, Brian, where they're going at a higher strike and going further out in time. So this one actually started to reach out to the point where it was starting to lose time. So I just decided to exit that and waiting for the next time that we see part of what's been this rolling thing with AMD. I like Marvell. I like, I like Micron. I like a lot of these names. I still own some Intel. So there's, there's a lot of different areas within the, the semiconductor space. But even just the last month, just look at the SMH, how it's gone from 260 up to 305. It's pulled back a little bit off of that. But it gives you a little bit of a sense of just how strong and powerful this move has been. It just has been continuously moving to the upside. Different participants along the way. Obviously, NVIDIA, NVIDIA has been one of the major components of this move. But mm. there are many, many others, including Qualcomm and others, where you can see a lot of different names yep. participating on this big move to the upside. I'm glad you said Qualcomm. Jim, you own it. You have for a while. You're printing money. You're thinking about selling anything. This Qualcomm just explodes to the upside. <laughs> It, it's got further room to run, Brian. And, uh, you know, one has to remember that for most of this year, it languished. It set a 52-week high, actually an all-time high back in January, and then it languished. It went down by about 25% before in the last few weeks setting a new high. I think it'll go well above $200 a share. The reason I'm saying that is because with the growth rate and earnings that this company is now showing, they really should have a 20 times multiple. And next year's estimates are well above $10 a share. So I think it's just a matter of time before it gets above 200 might even do it this year. Um, I, I think there are those naysayers who want to say that Apple is going to insource uh, the chips that, uh, that Qualcomm is providing. I say no way. All right. The intellectual property is an impregnable moat, uh, that intellectual property library that Qualcomm has. And it's monetizable. It's rich. The margins are high. This should be a 20 times multiple stock. No question about it. Yeah, I did a round trip from 162 back down to about 130 and now back up to 166. Jim says 200 is possible. Jim, thank you very much. All right, now let's switch gears and go to Boeing. Shares up nearly 5%, making it the best performing stock in the Dow today and one of the best in the S&P 500. Phil Bo is tracking why Boeing is doing so well, Phil, even as Airbus lands a pretty big order from Air Lease. Yeah, and we'll talk about uh, the Airbus order in just a little bit coming out of the Dubai Air Show. But it's in the Dubai Air Show or at the show where one of two pieces of news came out that really have given momentum for Boeing and Boeing shares this morning. That piece of news coming from a Boeing executive who was doing an interview over there at the show is that the company is nearing the resumption of deliveries of the 787 Dreamliner. Remember, they've been suspended while Boeing is working with the FAA on the protocol in terms of making sure that the plane is up to snuff in terms of what's expected before it can be signed off as safe to fly. They believe that they're close to resuming, according to the executive. Then you have the 737 MAX news. Now, this came out of China, with China saying that they are getting close to recertification on the MAX. Remember, it has been grounded since back in March of 2019. And China orders are critical to the growth of not only the MAX, but really for Boeing's commercial unit overall. The orders are 20% of the MAX backlog, according to Sheila Kaiulu uh, over at Jefferies. Those China orders, by the way, are approximately 10% of the deliveries through 2020. 
2024. So as you take a look at shares of Boeing, and again, we're going back to March of 2019. That's when the MAX was grounded. China orders are approximately a third of the 737 MAX inventory. Remember, there's so many of these planes that were built and they yeah. continued production before they ultimately suspended production. They're parked there. So they want to start uh, delivering some of these to the Chinese airlines. And quickly, I want to take a look at shares of Boeing versus Airbus over the last year, because you mentioned that huge order that Airbus uh, landed. You know, Indigo Partners uh, landing or placing an order for 255 uh, aircraft. We talked with Barry Biffle. Uh, of Frontier. Frontier is one of those Indigo airline uh, companies. They're ordering 93 A321neos. This is significant because this is the first really big, big, big order at an air show since going back to the start of uh, what was really just a meltdown in terms of the global aviation market. And get some of those planes out of that California desert, perhaps. Phil LeBeau, good stuff there. A lot of money in Boeing dare we say, taking off today. Bill, Bill, thank you. All right, Jim, you own Boeing. Got to love this. Well, I do. And Phil hit the major points. Um, listen, President Xi and President Biden are meeting tonight. I'd love to see an olive branch extended in terms of the 737 MAX being certified and orders coming in. But there's also something Phil didn't mention, which is this. This Dubai Air Show is very important. This is where big orders are announced. I really want a couple of big orders to be announced by Boeing because if you go back to the summer, Boeing walked away from the table with Ryanair for a multi-hundred dollar deal for 737 Maxes. If they walk away this week with some big orders from others, that really puts the pressure on Ryanair to come back to the table if they want to get any new planes within the next five years. The pressure may well be on Ryanair. And if that happens, then I may have to change my opinion on management and say that they did something very smart walking away from the Ryanair deal. Let's see what happens, Brian. Fair enough. Pete, you own Boeing calls. Hanging on to them? I did own them. I'm out now, uh, Brian. We had some buyers of, of the upside calls in Boeing. Stock was trading about 219. This is just about a week and a half ago or so. But those options have already moved significantly. It just shows you, you know, oftentimes people think, wow, when you buy an out-of-the-money option, it has to go all the way to that number before it starts to produce. That's absolutely not true. So this is a case of the stock's already made enough of a move to the upside. Those options more than doubled. I had to exit, so I'm no longer in those Boeing calls. All right, Pete, Jim, thank you very much. Well, the investment committee is making other moves as well. Jenny, you're buying an airline. I assume the stock, not the entire airline, although you never know. One day I'll buy the whole airline when I'm super rich and famous. <laughs> so, so we added What's JetBlue to our discipline growth strategy. JetBlue. We added JetBlue to our discipline growth strategy. And this is pretty unique for us because our discipline growth strategy has a hurdle of companies needing to have a 5% or better free cash flow yield. JetBlue does not have that at this moment in time. So this is a call where we're early and patient and we think that they're going to pretty easily get back to $2 of earnings. I don't know if that takes a year or a year and a half, but we're confident they get there. When they do, if you assume that they have just a 10 times multiple, you've got a $20 stock, which is 30% upside from here in a terrific company. Brian, a fun fact for you too, and this really shocked me as part of the research process, but revenue was only down 5% last quarter compared to 2019. So they're very much on the mend and we're seeing, we're seeing um, the trends really start to work in their favor and think they'll continue. So we're excited about holding this. Right, it's new stuff. and exciting for us to, yeah, to be early. <laughs> new and exciting. It's like 
like going somewhere on a flight. JBL, you were watching JetBlue. You're on the tape, I think, as they say on this program, Jenny. Thank you. All right, check out this mystery chart. It is one big oil stock that has gained over 15% in two months, and it just got an upgrade. You can know the name. We'll talk about it and debate it. That is next in your call of the day. Halftime is back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. The judge at Kyle Rittenhouse's murder trial has dismissed a charge. It's one count of dangerous weapons possession by a minor. The misdemeanor charge was seen as the one most likely to end in a conviction. Defense argued that Rittenhouse's assault rifle is not covered by Wisconsin's possession law. And closing arguments have now begun. A nine-year-old boy has become the youngest person to die from injuries after the World Music Festival... The death of Ezra Blount now brings the total death count to 10. A lawsuit filed by his family says that the child suffered severe damage to his brain, kidney and liver after being nearly crushed to death. And on the news, the reaction in Houston. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. NASA will not be putting men back on the moon for years to come. That's according to the agency's inspector general. A watchdog report also says that NASA lacks accurate and comprehensive cost estimates for the Artemis moon program. And American journalist Daniel Fenster has been released from Myanmar. Secretary of State Blinken welcomed the move and said Fenster was wrongfully detained for nearly six months. Fenster, meantime, says he's happy to be heading home. You're now up to date. Brian, I'll send it back to you. That is some very good news about him. Rahel, thank you very much. All right, now to our call of the day. Chevron, you knew that. Upgraded to buy from neutral at UBS with a price target of $125. UBS saying the oil upcycle is not reflected in the share price. Jenny and Pete, you both own shares. Jenny, I'll start with you. They say the company is very sensitive, maybe more than any other big company, to price movements. They think prices for oil are going to go up and therefore buy Chevron because also, by the way, they're a very good steward of capital. All right. 
This is an interesting call in that it's highlighting what's gone on in the broader context. So if you look at the European majors, right, they're being really forced to move into the next century and get away from fossil fuels. Chevron, meanwhile, has said, no, you know what, this is our business. This is what we're going to do. We're going to produce oil because this is where we are, and we're going to make a lot of money doing it for as long as it lasts. And this is this is UBS updating those and saying, okay, you know what, we think the average price of oil for the coming years is going to be $75 a barrel, but we know it's about 81 now. We know it's going to be about that next year. And they increased their earnings, and they increased them by about 35% over what they had. I think there will be a lot of catch-up overall. Then what you get is you get a stock with about almost $11 of earnings in the next couple of years, trading at $115 a share. And there's value there. And that's what this analyst is saying. He's saying there's value there. Cash is, cash is king, especially in a rising rate world, in a you know, harder-to-make-money world. Cash is going to be king. That's what this upgrade's all about, just the consistency of cash flows that they'll be able to, to pump out over the next several years. Yeah, so to speak, pump out. Okay, now Pete. To be fair, the the, the price target's a buck twenty-five, so they're calling for less than ten dollars. Right. What about eight percent and upside? So it's not like this is going to be some huge home run uh, of a call if they're right. Yeah. right. But don't forget the dividend. No, I agree too. with you, Sully. So plus the dividend. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that dividend is unreal. You look at their balance sheet, it's fantastic. You look at the cash flows that you were just talking about, Jenny, they're absolutely extraordinary. I mean, Sully, you know a lot about this whole world in the oil patch, and so you, you get it. I'll tell you what, I think Michael Wirth does an unbelievable job and always keeps focus on the direction they're going to. So, yeah, you talk about the 125 price target. I think that's extremely low, especially when you look at the potential valuation of this company and you look at that balance sheet, because with that cash flow, what they choose to do with that cash flow, they make up their own, their own decisions on that. It's not always going back into the development side of things. Oftentimes it's going back to buybacks. It's going back into dividend yield. It's going back into all these different aspects. So I, I like this company. I love the way they run it. And I think this is a company that not 125. I would expect something closer, probably to 135, maybe even a lot higher than that, given that oil continues this path that we're talking about right now. Yeah, and and, uh, Jim, they're trying to navigate this really sort of man-on-wire type tightrope act, which is you got to grow a little bit. But you don't want to tick off your shareholders by not giving them the money back. If they put too much money back into drilling, people say, why aren't we drilling more? There's a lot of reasons. One of them is shareholders will hit you in the head with a stick if you do that. They do not want you to spend that money. They want you to give it back to them. What about, what about the macro energy complex? Are you, are you a liker of it? I'm very much a liker, and while I don't own Chevron, I own Marathon Petroleum, which I think you know well, Brian. That's actually outperformed Chevron over the last one, two, and five years. I also own Kinder Morgan, which is a little bit behind Chevron, but has a higher dividend yield, so it's almost on par with. And I think the short answer here is that there is going to be a supply-demand mismatch in favor of higher oil prices for probably the next year. That's not going to get solved until either OPEC starts pumping more or domestic shale producers start pumping more, neither of which looks like it's going to happen anytime soon because of exactly what you just said. These managements, they already have activists on their board in some cases, and they want to keep their jobs. They want yep. to keep their share price high, and they know if they start spending too much, share price goes down. Uh, and, I, and I can say, Joe Terranova, without getting into the politics of it, you know, we're blame, doing a lot of OPEC blaming, and I understand that they're an easy, easy group to blame, but I, I knowing OPEC as well as I do, the more you blame them, the less likely they are to add probably more oil to the market. 
I'm just throwing that out there as well. Are you an owner or a buyer or a watcher or a seller of any of these oil and gas names or anything in the energy complex, by the way? Well, I, I own PXD and I own Chenier and Joe T. Um, I, I will say this about energy. It wow. is in the midst of a secular paradigm shift. That paradigm shift is yep. represented in the actions of what Mike Worth is actually doing. There's no incentive to increase production. Any, uh, the incremental revenue that's generated is going to be returned to the shareholder and on the improvement of the balance sheet. It's well said. I think it's the most interesting space over the next 10 years to invest in. And by the way, Chenier LNG being shipped around the world. The world is in huge demand for U.S. liquefied natural gas. Joe, thank you very much. All right, still ahead. The big ETFs to watch today, plus Pete's unusual activity trades. Oh, by the way, energy sector is at session highs right now. We're back right after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. Inflation and Bitcoin remain the two big stories in the ETF world. Let's dive into both of them with Jim Davalos. He's the portfolio manager at Horizon Kinetics. He manages the Inflation Beneficiaries ETF, symbol INFL, and Anna Paglia. She's the global head of ETFs and index strategy for Invesco. Anna, on Friday, the SEC rejected a pure play Bitcoin ETF. Now, there's two Bitcoin futures ETFs currently trading, but a short while ago, Invesco decided to withdraw its Bitcoin futures application. Why did you make that decision? And what do you think of the chances for a pure play Bitcoin ETF in 2022? Well, Bob, the decision to put the application falls into the camp of just because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh, as you may appreciate, uh, the market for the Bitcoin futures is in contango, which means uh, it's really expensive uh, to roll futures from one month to the next. And that cost uh, would erode the performance. So we do believe that ETFs uh, should be designed to give access to clients uh, to an underlying asset class. But we also believe that ETFs should provide returns that are aligned to the underlying portfolio or the index that you are tracking. In this case, we studied the market, we studied the portfolio, we looked at the constraints that the SEC was imposing on that portfolio itself, and we just concluded that it was not really aligned with our ETF strategy or philosophy, and it was not really aligned with uh, uh, products that clients are expecting from us, from Invesco. 
As far as the pure play ETF, I hope that uh, 2022 is going to be the year for that product. I wasn't surprised that the SEC uh, rejected the application last week. Um, issues like price manipulation and fraud have not been addressed yet. I do think that some more regulation uh, is something that the SEC is expecting before approving the next application. But I'm counting on 2022 right. to be here for a pure play. Yeah. All right. Uh, Jim, since launching the Inflation Beneficiaries ETF in January, your assets have gone straight up. You're approaching a billion dollars in assets under management. Now, you own land, you know, energy, and you own exchanges like the Deutsche Börse and the Australian Stock Exchange. I get the land and energy, but why are stock exchange considered inflation hedges? Thanks, Bob. And I think one of the main reasons for our success, both in terms of performance and assets, has been that we focus on good businesses that are capital light. So you don't need to invest in bad, cyclical, capital-intensive businesses to benefit from inflation. And exchanges are really the epitome of the great businesses that benefit from inflation. So they trade every derivatives ranging equity markets, currencies, commodities, uh, interest rates. Imagine the volatility and volume that's going to flow through these businesses if CPI keeps running three, four, five, six plus, the 10-year breaks out, and now these are all digitized. So basically, there's no variable expense. They are quite literally the global, the, a toll booth on global financial activity, which is going to skyrocket both hedging and speculating in an inflationary environment. Okay, thanks very much, guys. Much more on how to play inflation with ETFs, along with the prospects for a Bitcoin ETF in 2022 with Anna and Jim. Coming up on ETF Edge, they'll be joined by Dave Nautic, CIO and Director of Research of ETF Trends. He'll break down what was behind the SEC's rejection of that Bitcoin ETF. ETFedge.cnbc.com, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Half time back right after this. All right, welcome back. Time now for Unusual Activity. Pete, what are you seeing today? All right, I'm going to start with Pinterest on you. And this is an interesting one because it had that big spike with the PayPal rumor. Then it dropped. It got towards 52-week lows. It's trading right around 48.40. Today, they're buying 18,000, Brian, of the November 26 expiring 54 calls. Pretty aggressive buyers there. 40 cents up to about 60 cents. And oh, by the way, they also just came in and bought 11,000 of the January 55 calls as well. So hitting twice in a very short period of time. Speaking of which, Snap is another one. Snap was trading around 56, 57 dollars. We had a buyer of the 58 strike calls in November, 8,000 of those for 40 cents up to about 50 cents. They also came back and bought the 57 calls and bought 6,500 of those from 50 cents up to about $1.50. Lastly, I'm going to hit with you real quick, Win. So Win's up almost 4% today. We all know the story, Macau and everything else. I will tell you this, November 100s have gotten very active. A couple thousand of those have traded. And the November 102s, yep. about 1,500 of those have traded as well. So seeing a little bit of activity up in Win. Okay. Good stuff, Pete. Thank you. All right, up next on Halftime, Final Trades. Stick around. It is time for the Final Trades. Jenny Harrington, kick it off. Fiserv, another one from our growth portfolio. This thing trades at 16 times earnings, 15% earnings growth ahead, and it's wildly oversold. Jim? Qualcomm, analyst day tomorrow. That should be the catalyst. Joe, talk to us about ResMed. 
San Diego based medical equipment focus on sleep disorder. <laughs> Go Chargers. Pete Nigerian. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to give you a monster beverage. I see some call buying in there. I think the stock's going higher. <laughs> Thanks all. Well, that does it for us on halftime. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. 